something I forgot to mention last week. Um, okay. Something I forgot to mention last week was you'll notice, if, I don't know if you ever noticed, but we always put a memory verse down on the front of your bulletin. And that's just a way of helping you. Uh, perhaps it's something to put on the fridge and we try to choose verses that will be um, encouraging to you and, and, a, and a help and in your growth and edification. You might notice that this week's and last week's and the next couple of weeks, I have Philippians 4, 4 to 9 down there. Now that's a lot to chew off perhaps in a week, but those are verses that will, uh, they have been favorites of the church as long as the church has existed and they are really helpful helpful, helpful verses, and my encouragement to you is that we as a church might memorize those verses together and have them at the forefront of our mind as we seek to live out this life that Christ has called us to. Today, again, we come to the final chapter of Philippians, and we'll pick up in verse 1. I want to encourage you, whenever, whenever you say we're coming to the final chapter or in conclusion, it's, it's as if... Bibles close and minds turn off and people get ready to get up and go. That, that is not my point in introducing the message this way. I simply want to say to you, don't turn off here as we come to the fourth chapter of Philippians. Some of the most treasured statements in all of Scripture are found in this chapter. And I'll leave it to you to read through it and find them. But you'll find that there are a lot of verses that you have heard over and over and over again, quoted time and again. Perhaps you've memorized them yourself. This is a great chapter in a great epistle. And I am excited to be here. Um, let's read together as we consider what God would say to us this morning. Verse 1, Philippians 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers, those names, those whose names are in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Lord, help us to garner all of our strength and attention. We remember that it is you who speaks and not a man. We remember that your word always is sent forth by you to accomplish its purposes. And Lord, your purpose among your people is to convict of sin and to affirm in righteousness and to strengthen and encourage. And Lord, I pray you would do those things. Your purpose for those who don't know you, Lord, sometimes is to bring them to salvation and sometimes, oh Lord, is to harden them in their rebellion. And I pray this morning that there would be no hard hearts, but that all would come to these things with ears to hear. This we ask in Christ's name, amen. In 1928, and I believe that predates anybody who's in attendance this morning, one of the worst disasters 
of civil engineering occurred in the state of California. And it happened just north of the Santa Clarita Valley in Los Angeles County. The St. Francis Dam collapsed, sending a wall of water that killed, well, what they've accounted for, 431 people. It is the second most deadly event in California apart from uh, the San Francisco earthquake. The fatalities, they figure, were much greater because there were many undocumented people who had moved to California and were working in that area as farmers. Perhaps if you've driven to L.A., you've been by the site. You'll remember Lake Castaic on your right just as you begin to descend into Santa Clarita. And it's off to the left where this dam was built. The dam was built in 1926, and it was built to serve a growing population in L.A. County. The need for water was great, and it was in 1928, just two years later, after its completion, that it suffered catastrophic failure. It was built, in the end, on defective soil, and that soil began to erode and to give way, and it wasn't long until cracks began to appear in the dam. Officials knew about the cracks, officials examined the cracks, but officials ultimately were not alarmed by the cracks, thinking that they were perhaps just surface, and they did nothing about it. It was two and a half minutes before midnight on March 12th, while people were asleep in their bed, that the dam gave way in total, and it sent two and a half billion gallons of water in a 140-foot wall down the San Francisco Canyon into the Santa Clara River Valley. In just a matter of hours, this liquid avalanche, as they called it, made its way 50 miles, emptying debris and victims into the Pacific Ocean just south of Ventura. All of it, beloved, started with a faulty foundation and one crack in the dam. Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. How many stories do you and I know of entire churches that were swept away because the cracks in the dam were never paid attention to? Because there was a flood wall that was released because of broken relationships in the church. We as a church need to pay very close attention to the erosion of relationships in our midst. Unity, as you know, we've spoken about it a great deal of late, is a great priority to the church of Christ. And we must, in the words of Ephesians 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And what we have before us this morning really is what amounts to a case study in conflict resolution. We see the Apostle Paul wisely shepherding the church at Philippi as he deals with the conflict that threatened to divide these people. And I want to give you this morning, and we do have just a short time, we're going to 
go with people into the waters of baptism later this morning. I don't know if you knew that. We've we tried to make you aware. We hope you'll be willing to stay. We get to hear today testimonies how the Lord has worked to redeem his people, and that'll be a great joy. But in the meantime, we're going to press through these six principles for dealing with conflict among Christians, and we'll use this specific text to help lead us in all of that. So six principles for dealing with conflict among Christians. And as I said, we must deal with it. It's not okay in the church of Christ to just let these things fester. Our first principle is this, that conflict, conflict among brethren requires speaking truth in the context of love. We must speak truth in the context of love. Look back at our text and look again at verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, more precisely from the Greek, therefore, my brothers, beloved and longed for, and he calls them his joy and his crown. And then he sandwiches again this verse with another affirmation of his love for these people. He calls them my beloved. The Apostle Paul does not come into a situation of conflict and simply pull the trigger. He's going to be direct. He's going to deal confrontationally with the sin that exists in the church. He's hinted at it already a number of times earlier in the letter. Remember, there was a complaining spirit among these people, and Paul had complained, had, had told them not to complain. You remember back in chapter 2, we'll get to it later, but you'll see that he calls them to consider one another as better than themselves. He calls them to humility, the humility of Christ that serves rather than demands. And here he will come even more specifically to, conf to confront the issue. But here's the thing that I'm wanting to make the, the, the point of, and that it is this, that everyone in this church understood full well that they were loved by the Apostle Paul. He had made that crystal clear to them. In fact, the reality that he's willing to deal with the conflict says again, I love you enough to address it. He didn't leave them in their disunity. He didn't leave the the fractures unaddressed. Now last week I likened verse one to a bridge connecting chapter three to chapter four and we said last week that Paul was standing on that bridge looking back towards chapter three. Well now he has pivoted and he's looking at chapter four and he says in light of all that Christ has done for us, we now have some implications that we need to pay attention to for Christian living. And so he gives this steadfast, he gives this call to steadfastness, and then he follows it immediately with this issue of relational upheaval at the church in Philippi. And Paul is going to engage it from a posture of love, from a posture of affection for all who are involved. He loved them, he had told them he loves them. Chapter one and verse seven, I have you in my heart. Verse 8, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ. And verse 1, as I pointed out, my brothers beloved and long for my beloved, my joy, my crown. Paul's heart was for these people. He let them know it. 
But that said, he does not soft-pedal sin, nor does he spare those who are entrapped or ensnared in it. And that brings us to our second point. Conflict among brethren means sparing nobody. Peace and unity are so critical in the body of Christ that no one is allowed to threaten it. All of it must be confronted. And the elders, when we become aware that conflict exists in this congregation, we get involved and we do so swiftly because unity and peace are a valuable thing that Christ has accomplished for us in his blood. There was a contention, there was a rift, a very public dispute that was festering in the church at Philippi, and everybody knew about it, as is the case oftentimes when there are rifts in the church. This was not news to anybody. And somehow it was beginning to spill over, and it was beginning to affect the rest of the body, and Perhaps, as it usually goes, people would hear about the rift, and then they begin to evaluate the situation and listen to one side or the other, and they would, they would align themselves behind one point of view or another. And it was beginning to affect the whole church. And fissures in the dam are never minor. And this quarrel... Paul is going to call out, even if it means naming names publicly. And that's very significant, frankly, that he would do this. Paul identifies two women by name who are at odds in this congregation, one of them by the name of Yodia and the other by the name of Syntyche. These women, beyond a shadow of a doubt, were Christians and they were mature Christians. Paul says in verse 3 that their names are written in the book of life. They were also prominent women within the church at Philippi. Paul says in verse 3 again that they had shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. He doesn't get any more specific to that as to how they shared his struggle, but they were warriors. They were engaged in the battle. They were zealous. They had a zeal for propagation of the gospel. They were well-known. They were faithful. They were zealous women. They were distinguished women of God. These were people whom Paul loved. They were beloved sisters, and they were strategic to Paul when he thought of them. But that's just the point. Despite their zeal, despite their maturity, despite Paul's love for them, despite their prominence in the church, they were stuck in sin and Paul does not spare them. That's important. There is no one who gets to play fast and loose with unity and with the peace of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This had to be difficult for Paul, don't you think? You put yourself there writing that letter. Imagine writing to this congregation. How would it be for you to call out two of your sisters by name? 
publicly. Paul was grateful for these women. He had a personal relationship with each of these women. And you've got to imagine what it was like that Sunday when Paul had just written and the pastor at this church had read through chapter 3 and spoken of the glory of Christ and the wonder of his righteousness and the, the need to pursue the upward call of God and all the things that were there. And then Paul, by way of summary, says to the church, you're my beloved brethren. Remember, they, they had no Philippians in their Bible. They'd never heard this letter before. And Paul is writing to them, calling them beloved, whom I long to see, beloved and long for, my joy and crown. Everybody basking in the wonder of, of the affection of the Apostle Paul and the truths of the gospel. And he's calling them, stand firm in these things as a unified body. And then he turns and says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Can you imagine what that moment was like? You see, it reinforces, doesn't it, just how important unity in the church is that Paul would not spare them, though he loved them, and that Paul would name them by name. I mean, would Paul have named names if it were not necessary to name names? Does he have it in his heart, honestly, in your own assessment of this, did Paul have it in his heart to wound these ladies? Does he afflict willingly, or was there a necessity of doing this? How would you be if I named names from this pulpit this morning? And what would your response be? This is a painful moment in the church at Philippi. I'm convinced Paul had no heart to single them out except that it was absolutely necessary to do it and that the matter of Christian unity is just that important. It's that vital. The Proverbs say that the wounds of a friend are sweeter than the kisses of an enemy. And Paul is not one to simply tell his friends what they want to hear. He tells them what they need to hear. I want you to look with me just at another example of this over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know enough of Paul's history with the Corinthians and how they had disaffected from him and turned away from him and been persuaded by these false apostles to doubt Paul and to distrust him. And we'll just, we'll just have a touch and go here. Chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Here Paul to these Corinthians says, Look, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. He's trying to reconcile with them. And he says, We have spoken freely to you. And he says to them, Our heart is open wide. 
Do you see how conciliatory Paul is? I've spoken the truth in love to you. I've spoken freely to you. I'm an open book. There's no hidden agenda. My heart is open wide to you. He says, you are not restrained by us. You want to know where our relationship is not working? It's not because of us. You're not restrained because we don't want relationship with you. He says, no. Oh, Corinthians, he says, you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. The father in the Proverbs says to his son, my son, give me your heart. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. I have, I have given my life to you. I've imparted my life. As he says to the Thessalonians, I, I didn't just come here spilling out a bunch of stuff. I came here and imparted my life to you. I want that same kind of openness in return. I want you to receive me. I want there to be warmth and affection. I want this crack in the dam patched. Look over at chapter 7. He wrote them a letter, and it was a painful letter for Paul to write. We'll pick up in verse 2. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I don't speak this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. What a shepherd. It's amazing. Paul had really taken it on the chin from these people. And here is a heart that pleads for them to, to, to re-engage and to, to have a relationship that's right. And so he writes them this letter, and he, he's talking about that letter in, in verse 8. Well, we could pick up the end of verse 7. Titus, Titus comes to him, and he tells Paul, this attitude that now exists in the Corinthians. And he says he was comforted by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with, with which he comforted, which, with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me. You see, there had been a softening on the Corinthians' part. And then verse 8, Paul says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, but that wasn't Paul's heart. That wasn't the aim, to take a pound of flesh and to inflict pain on them. No, his aim was to reconcile, and he says, you know, it caused you sorrow, but only for a little while. And now, verse 9, I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. He says, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. death. And he, he goes on to articulate the response of the Corinthians Chapter 7 and verse 11, when he says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. They, what vindication of yourselves. They wanted to vindicate their name. They wanted to be separated from their sin. What indignation. They were angry about the sin that had caused the breach with Paul. What fear, fear of God. What longing. 
what zeal, what avenging of wrong. They went after wrong with all they had. They repented in full, and it was evident to Paul, so much so that he goes on to say, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. They were not innocent, but their repentance was so thorough that Paul looked at them and said, I, I don't even see what stood between us. You see, this is the way it is in the church of God, beloved. Anybody who's told you that the church is just the love boat on the sea of tranquility, that's a pipe dream. That's heaven. As long as we are in these bodies and on this planet, there will be conflict in our midst, and we must deal with it. Do you see that from the text? And no one is above it. Not even prominent, faithful, godly, People in the church. No one has license in the church to nurse their grievances and to threaten the peace and the unity that Christ purchased with his blood. So we're to address conflict in truth and love, and we're to address it with everyone. Thirdly, conflict among brethren requires impartiality. It requires impartiality. In other words, when we're dealing with conflict in our midst, there can be no favoritism. Favoritism in general in the Bible is condemned. But this is an area that is ripe for favoritism when there's conflict in the church. And notice how he addresses these ladies back in verse 2 again of Philippians 4. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Paul does not address them with one verb for them to share. I urge Yodia and Syntyche. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. It's as if he, he throws his arm around Yodia and he says, my precious sister, there are some things wrong about your relationship with Syntyche and this is a problem and I want to exhort you. And then he turns away from Yodi and throws his arm around Syntyche and says, my dear sister. He deals with them individually. He does not elevate one above the other. He doesn't prioritize anybody. He hasn't chosen sides in the matter. Paul has no dog in the fight except that unity be protected. And he looks at them and he says, look, our bond of Christ in Christ is too valuable, too important for you ladies to continue like this. It's time, Yodia, for you to let it go. It's time, Syntyche, for you to pursue the things that make for peace. It's time for the two of you to work this out. There is a oneness, ladies, that was purchased by the blood of Christ that your present course of life is making a mockery of it. The church is not divided. The church is one. And Christ died to purchase that unity. And no one has freedom to stand against that. These women, frankly, had prioritized their own interests over the interests of Christ, hasn't they? Jesus did not stand on Yodia's side or Syntyche's side, and neither does the Apostle Paul. And so he calls them to account, and that brings us to our, our fourth principle for resolution of conflict, and it is this, that conflict among brethren 
confronts sin, calls for repentance, and emphasizes resolution. Conflict among brethren confronts sin, calls for repentance, and emphasizes resolution. Now, you can say I don't see all that in the text, but I'll try to make the best case I can for it. Note verse 2 again. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. You may have a marginal note that says to be of the same mind, and that's correct. Steve Lawson says, quote, this conflict was not theological but relational. And the problem was that these two women were in conflict with one another and remained unreconciled. In other words, this was not a matter of principle. It was a matter of, of, of preference. And it was not an issue of truth and error, but an issue of application. It had to be. If it was theological, Paul would have addressed the issue. He didn't address the issue. He addressed the bigger issue. And the issue is that these two women are not unified. And it's interesting, you know, you think about it, it it may have been their strengths that led them to their division. You've got two mature, devoted, uncompromising women of conviction who have served the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ and the purpose of the gospel faithfully. And it's precisely those kind of people who have deep-rooted convictions and they're not about to compromise, and you can see how somehow some little thing had crept in between them, and they were butting heads over this issue. Paul says you've got to deal with it. And somehow Paul had come, presumably from Epaphroditus, he had come to know of this quarrel, and he confronts their division clearly, but you'll note he does it somewhat indirectly, and I think this too is, is helpful to us in some circumstances. What was it, I ask you, that divided Yodia from Syntyche? What was the issue? I don't know. And neither do you. And it's, it's been a long, long time. And I find it intriguing that God didn't see fit to record any of the issue. Who cares? It's not the issue. But he recorded for all eternity these ladies' names and the fact that they were hard-hearted towards one another. That's an issue. There is no need to hash through all the details, all the ins and outs, all the fine nuances of the things that divide us to determine who has the higher ground or who's more right. Who sees this thing exactly the way the Lord Jesus would see it? You see... Paul doesn't engage in any of that. He doesn't even render judgment who's right in the matter. Whatever it was that caused the rift in their relationship gave way to hardened hearts, and there was a a growing distance between these two, a disaffection between the two of them, and there was a wall of separation that was just getting higher and higher, and it was impacting the church. And Paul says, enough. We might say they had an attitude problem that was bigger than the problem that divided them, that had snowballed out of proportion. And so he confronts them in their hardened posture, and he calls them to repentance. And you say, well, where's the call in there? Well, it 
It is simply in this that he directs them or he encourages them to resolution. It assumes the sin. And he's calling them to a new direction. They were headed south. He says, go north. They were at war with one another. He says, I want to see peace. And so he is, in fact, confronting their sin, though we don't know precisely what that sin is, except that it had divided them, and there's obviously hardness of heart. He doesn't here say repent, and yet he is calling them to repentance, and he does so by emphasizing the resolution. And I, I think this is worth sticking in your pocket. You see, he is pushing them past the past. He's pushing them past the past and into resolving the resolution. He's pushing them toward resolution. He's putting before them positively where they are to be, and they are not there yet. You see, they didn't need to rehash the nuances of some stale argument. They needed to humbly put the interests of Christ ahead of their own interests. They needed to draw their minds into alignment with the Lord and his purposes. How quickly when we're in the midst of these debates, if you've ever been there and if you haven't, well, you're either really mature or you have just not really lived your life among people. You've been living in a bubble where it's you, yourself, and God, that narrow hallway. How quickly the hallway narrows, doesn't it, in the midst of these things where we assume that it, the, narrow, the, the hallway is just wide enough for me and the Lord who never compromise. You see, but the thing is, Euodia thought she was right. And Syntyche was sure that God was on her side in the midst of this thing. And Paul says, no, no, ladies, the problem, whatever those issues are, the problem is the breach in your relationship, the hardness of heart, the division, the chasm that exists between the two of you. You want to take this church down? Would you do that to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? You've got to deal with your conflict. You see, they needed to draw their minds in alignment. Turn back to chapter 2. They needed to draw their minds into alignment again with the things that Paul has already spoken to them back in chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, you remember when we went through this, all these ifs or senses, since there is encouragement in Christ and since there is consolation of love, since there is the fellowship of the Spirit and since... There is affection and compassion. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. It's the same thing he's calling these two ladies to. You might call this a setup. He hasn't gotten specific yet. He was going to let Yodi and Syntyche just ride this out to the end of the letter, but he's driving at it here. He says, you guys be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What's that purpose? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Oh. You have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Can I, in the context of this morning's message, put that this way? Although he existed in the form of God, although he was right, yet for our sakes, what? He took on flesh and he took on wrong. He took on sin. Though he was without sin, he took on sin. Why? Why did he look the fool as he walked planet earth? Why did he hang naked from a cross bearing your sins? For your good. He didn't need to get all entangled in the details, beloved. He died to himself to provide for us what we didn't even know we needed. Syntyche, are you paying attention? Yodia, do you understand? Christ didn't regard equality with God as something to be hung on to. He didn't demand his rights and his privileges as God. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. And he was made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Men didn't look at him and say, look, there's God about to die for our sins. Men looked at him and said, there's a man. In fact, he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. I'm not really all that attracted to him. He's just a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, that's what Yodia and Syntyche needed to fix their minds on. Listen, beloved, to harbor bitterness and to live in alienation from one another, to come in here and sit on this side because you don't like somebody on that side, it, let's just call it what it is. It is sin. I don't care what the reasons are. It's sin. It is not right. And we must not countenance it. We must not be okay with it. There is a submission of your personal peccadilloes in the interest of peace among the body of Christ. If you're going to make waves and you're going to cause division among people in this church, it better be really, really, really important. As in, the Lord said X and Y is happening over here and we need to deal with Y because the Lord said X. Okay, there is a time, there is a place. But the vast majority of the things that divide churches have nothing to do with thus saith the Lord. They have to do with thus saith my opinion. Thus say me. And submission to Christ demands the submitting of your personal opinions and preferences to the opinions and preferences of others. We're glad to exalt other people. We're glad to go low. We're glad to do the things that make for peace, even if it requires me humbling myself and feeling little and feeling uh, uh, unappreciated. You see, Christ gave his life. We, I, we have to keep coming back to this. This was part of the price of the precious blood of Christ. He gave his life to establish peace among us. 
He hung on the cross for our unity. Would we play loose and fast with that? Who are we, beloved, to tip the boat, to rock it, to threaten it? Now, this falling out that Yodi and Syntyche had was no minor thing. In fact, we know that because Paul is doubtful, frankly, that they're even going to be able to work it out on their own. He says, I can't leave the two of you in a room together. So that brings us to our fifth principle, and that is that conflict among brethren appeals for help if necessary. Conflict among brethren appeals for help if necessary. In other words, our our unity is so critical to all of us that where those cracks in the dam occur, when we we can't fix them, we look to, to our brethren in Christ for help in getting things right. This is a corporate work. Look at verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Some things need help, and this is good. There is no shame in seeking help in difficult circumstances. And so Paul makes an appeal to a man, and we think he probably was a leader in the church. We don't know. And I want you to note this. I mean, there, there, there is wisdom out there that says that men should not counsel women, that pastors need to be very careful. But, but under, don't draw a real hard line there because Paul here has two women in conflict. He doesn't call on a woman in the church to deal with it. He calls on a brother. That's not to say that's the pattern either. I just want your door to be open wide enough to realize that That here, a shepherd is being called by Paul, presumably a shepherd in the church, is being called to deal with the conflict that exists between these two ladies. He's referred to in the New American Standard anyway as true companion. You may have true yoke fellow in your translation or true partner. Syzygous is the word. And it means, get this, it means yoked together. It's used by Greek authors to refer to any sort of partnership. Could be marriage, could be business, whatever. And so here's the thing. Some have su- suggested that Paul here is making a play on words, that there are there is a man in the church by the name of Syzygous, which again means yoke fellow. Do you remember in the book of Philemon when Paul uses a, a turn on Onesimus' name? Onesimus means profitable. And Paul was trying to make the case saying, look, he was profitless to you before, but now he's profitable both to you and to me. And he uses Onesimus's name. Some suggest that that's what he's doing here, and it really could be. He is speaking by way of proper name. He names Yodia and Syntyche and Clement. Why not Syzygus? We don't know. But if so, it's intriguing to think that he's appealing to this Syzygus that, that yoke fellow by proper name, he's saying, look, live out your namesake. <laughs> he's saying to them, look, you come help yoke these women together in harmonious relationship. And remember the point we're making here is that sometimes we need help and reconciliation. And Paul calls this man, whatever his name was, you know he must have been a true man, a faithful man, a wise man, a compassionate man. And he calls him alongside to help them relationally. And again, this is just part of God's design for the church. And he says to this Syzygus, he says, help these women who have shared my struggle 
in the cause of the gospel. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I thought about making a separate point here, but I didn't. But just note the conciliatory language of Paul. Remember, this is, a, this, this is a public appeal. Remember, you've got two women sitting in this congregation who frankly are sweating, right? Their, their heart rate is up. They're nervous. Paul has surprised them. They had no idea this was coming, and it, I'm sure it blindsided them. And here Paul again reiterates his love, doesn't he, and his affection for them. And he acknowledges publicly, these women have shared my struggle. They're faithful. They're co-laborers in the gospel with me. Paul doesn't distance from them and say, you guys get this together. No, he comes in alongside of them. And he says, look, sisters, we need to get this together because I love you, because you, you have been faithful to Christ. You've been called alongside and have worked faithfully in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow believers, and that's what you do when you're afraid you're going to leave somebody out, right? Paul wanted to include all of those who had labored alongside of him in Philippi, and there had been many. But then he says of them, whose names are written in the book of life. What did that do for Yodi and Syntyche? It settled them, didn't it? So often we want to jump to that conclusion that unfaithful behavior means that, boy, you better examine your salvation. You, you might not be in Christ. Paul says, no, no. Great servants of Christ can also be great sinners. And ladies, your names are in the book of life. And that's the very reason you need to reconcile. And that brings us to our final principle. How do we address conflict in the church? Well, first, with love. Secondly, with everyone, no matter who it is. Thirdly, we do it without partiality. Fourth, we call those in conflict to resolution through repentance and reconciliation. And fifth, we appeal for help when necessary. And now we get down to the nitty-gritty. Here's the motivation for reconciliation. Here's, here's the fuel that inflames the Christian heart to want to be right with his brother in Christ. This is why we die to ourselves in the pursuit of peace. Number six, conflict among brethren necessitates that we remember and rejoice in Christ. We remember and we rejoice in Christ. Look at verse 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I would have you note first that these words came in the midst of a sorrowful moment at the church at Philippi. Sorrowful moments, confrontation of sin, self-examination, the weightier matters of the faith, the need for sanctification, all of that can coexist with Christian joy. And Paul calls them to it. You remember that we defined joy in the Lord as being glad in God for all of his goodness to us in Christ. We, are, we have an inward gladness in God for all of his goodness to us in Christ. You see, to rejoice in the Lord is to delight in his righteousness, which is ours by faith. It is to, to be glad in his reconciling cross work, wherein the wrath of God was, was, was satisfied once and for all. It is to rejoice in his abundant love, which is 
never failing. It is to exult in the reality that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God and we are brothers and sisters of Christ and heaven is our home and our household forevermore. It is to relish in all of the blessings of life together in the Spirit as we await our Savior's return. You catch all of that, and I know I went quickly, but listen, Yodi and Syntyche have so much in common in Christ. And yet their joy, you can bet on it, was not brimming. They are nursing things between the two of them that have has stolen their joy. And their sad hearts are chained to petty grievances of earth. You see, these things that we have in Christ, beloved, these are the things that we share, each one of us, tall, fat, skinny, ugly, male, female, educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, we have a fellowship in these things that Christ has given to every last one of us. They are what we are to anchor ourselves in. This is rejoicing in the Lord. And when your mind is fixed and focused on those things, you will lay down your silly toy ammunition and arms. You will just prioritize the things of God. You will be much smaller in your own estimation because Christ will be much more significant. And, and we understand this, right, that, that we have been reconciled to God through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to lay down his life a ransom for many. And through his death, he established peace first between us and God. And that bears out the good fruit of Christian affection and reconciliation with one another. Christ's people are peace-loving people who make it their aim to be at peace with all men as far as it is possible with them. Jesus taught it this way. Listen to this. Let this sink in. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Again, you get it. This is exactly what God did through his son to establish peace. And therefore, it's our duty and frankly, it should be our delight to walk in Christ's footsteps. This is the principle that I think we derive from this text, that rejoicing in the Lord results in reconciled relationships. That's just the way it is. If you understand the gospel and you are saved by that gospel, that gospel and all the joy that we find in relishing that gospel will have a very practical impact on a horizontal level in this congregation. We will love each other earnestly and sincerely and faithfully and consistently. It will be palpable. You can feel it in here. People will walk in and say, Christ is among these people because of the way they love each other. Yodi and Syntyche needed to put the interest of Christ ahead of their personal conflicts. Beloved, and so do we. We've all known, I know, because I've, I've, I've heard the tales from so many of you of the heartbreak of division in the body of Christ. That is a tragic, tragic thing. 
And we have been speaking a great deal about the duty and delight of Christian unity. And we've known the joy of it here. We really have. We've known the fruit of it here for some time now. And, and, and it is the cynical, cynical, that rhymes with the word sin. I don't know if they rhyme, but you, you get cynical. When I get cynical, I need the sin part to, to, to stand out in front of me. There is a cynical attitude when things are going well that sort of sees that the hourglass was turned over and we begin to think as shepherds it's only a matter of time. Can we commit ourselves to being faithful? To quickly patching the cracks in the dam? Can you take personal responsibility? I'm not talking, don't think about anybody else. Nobody's sitting next to you, not your wife, not your cousin, not, the, not Yodi and Syntyche. You. Can you take personal responsibility for the peace and unity of this fellowship, for preserving it? You can. Beloved, be very, very careful. The church is not a trampoline for you to bounce on and treat however you want. The church has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And we need to give this our greatest attention and our highest diligence to see that Christ's purposes among his people are realized. I'm going to leave you with some scripture today. Brothers and sisters, let us then put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And let us put on a heart of compassion, kindness, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let us then, Romans 14, 19, pursue the things that make for peace. Let us then, Ephesians 4, 3, to be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let us then, Philippians 2, 4, put others before ourselves. Let us then, Romans 15, 2, seek to please our neighbor for his good, for his edification. This isn't about me. Let us take care with our tongues, Ephesians 4, 29, to build up and not to tear down. Let us keep close watch on our attitudes that we would, Philippians 2.3, consider one another as better than ourselves. And let us offer our bodies no longer in the service of sin and selfishness, but rather as a living sacrifice for the service of Christ and his church, Romans 12.1. If there is division among any of us, beloved, Deal with it for the glory of God and for the good of his church and for the joy of life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these hard words to Yodi and Syntyche. Lord, we see it. We see how valuable unity is and what a, what a prize you place on peace among your people. Lord, you said that it was by our love for one another that the world would know that you are in fact Christ and that the Father sent you. Lord, we confess that we have failed in areas in our own estimation, each one of us, and we confess that we have allowed 
with fractures at times to go on too long. And Lord, we have indulged those things and simply distanced ourselves from others so as not to deal with them. I pray that you would forgive us for that. And I pray that you would bring to mind anything that needs to be made right. And Lord, that you might see among us a people who, who reflect the unity that is in the Godhead where there is never a fracture, where there is never self-exaltation, where there is always mutuality of love and agreement and singleness of mind. Lord, we'll, we'll never achieve it in this life, but we know that eternally we will in fact know that mind. and We anticipate that day. Lord, until then, help us to grow in these areas, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.